This is C-SPAN's Afterwards podcast. This week, Dana Perino on her book, Everything Will Be Okay, Life Lessons for Young Women from a Former Young Woman. She's interviewed by Victoria Clark, former Assistant Defense Secretary for Public Affairs in the George W. Bush administration. It is great to be here today with Dana Perino. Dana, I hate to say this, I think it's been 10 or 15 years since we've seen each other in person. It is, but like you're so near and dear to my heart that I feel like it hasn't been that long, but yeah, it's been a while, right? Um, for, all, for all of us. For all of us, and there are certain things that people go through in life. People obviously who've been in the military and been on the battlefield together say, I might not have seen my pal for 20 years, but we picked up like it was yesterday. And I think it's true for people who work in politics as well. It's pretty grueling. I think so too. I think of those relationships as forged in fire. Um, and you know, those me- my memories of all of those years of the Bush administration are very vivid. Um, yeah. and, and they don't fade, at least not yet. Um, Some of the bad ones, I hope, fade. Yes, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, um, actually, it's funny because a, a lot, I, I'm sure you probably get asked also about going back into an administration one day, and I'm like, whoa, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm, I'm too old for that. Yeah. <laughs> that takes it. That's a young person's job. Um, I said that several times. I worked, I'm so old, I go back to the Reagan administration. And at one point, um, when Bush 41 was president, I got to work in the U.S. Trade Representative's office, which is this tiny agency with a huge mandate. It was a fantastic job, absolutely fantastic job. Then I got dragged into the ill-fated Bush Quail campaign, and then I, you know, mercifully found some work in the private sector. And people would ask me that, oh, would you ever go back? And I'd say, nope, not doing that, right? You know, I'm, Mary Madeline and I were chair people of the Friends Don't Let Friends Go Back Into Government, right? <laughs> And then 43, God bless them, takes office. I had some friends who had worked at the Pentagon. One conversation leads to another. And people said, would you ever go back? And I go, absolutely not. And I said, I was spoiled. I worked for this tiny agency, this huge mandate. It was the greatest job in the world. I, that could never be topped. And so then I end up with the biggest agency. But how did you and Mary Madeline then both end up, did you let each other down in the, in the society? Completely, completely. <laughs> epic fails. Epic fails. But we didn't well, let I'm each glad that you did. All right, this is all about you. And there are, I have so many questions. I'm gonna hold up so people can see. Just page after page after page of questions um, about your wonderful new book, because you're an author several times over. But as famous as you are, and you are world famous, for very good reason, I think there are a lot of people who might not be familiar with your backstory. And I feel like I, know, I knew some of it, but then I started reading and researching and went, wow, I didn't know that. You are a Western girl gone East. Yeah. So tell us about Wyoming and growing up in Wyoming. So I, that's true. It's, I remember being at a dinner in Germany with President Bush at one point and, you know, you introduce yourself to the your dinner partners and somebody said, well, where are you from? And I said, well, originally, you know, I was born in Wyoming. Uh-huh. And he said, oh, I've never met anybody from Wyoming. And, you know, the chances of that being true, Wyoming has the smallest population. Uh, so that is uh, often the case. I was born in Evanston, Wyoming. That's a small uh, town, um, almost at the Utah border, southeastern part of Wyoming. Um, my dad had grown up on a ranch in Newcastle, Wyoming. That's in the Black Hills, so the opposite side of the state. My mom was from Rawlins, Wyoming, which is on I-80. So if you ever took a road trip across the country, chances are you probably went through Rawlins. And Wyoming was... Um, just such a special place for us. Um, I, 
those were my vacations, right? So mm-hmm. I didn't go on anything. I never went to Europe. I, in fact, I don't think I even, I don't think I saw the ocean until I was 16 years old. Um, we went to the ranch or to my other grandma's uh, place there in Rollins. And I just loved it. You know, I think back on that, I was the oldest grandchild. Uh-huh. I, so that, that, that had some cachet. Um, we were pretty self-sufficient on the ranch. You know, there was uh, a big garden. Um, we raised cattle, uh, some pigs, uh, horses, chickens, uh-huh. you know, um, all, of, all of that good stuff. And my grandfather was a county commissioner. Uh, mm-hmm. And he knew Vice President Dick Cheney from way back when, but when, wow. but when, but when Cheney was running for Congress uh-huh. in Wyoming. Um, so I, I was kind of involved in or aware of politics and public service early on, and especially energy issues. My grandfather was very into that in terms of he he always believed since I was a young girl that America needed to be more energy independent. Wow, so, very forward thinking. Yeah, so you know, I, I I had a chance to um, have have that experience, but my dad went to college. He was the first of his family to go to college, and he went to University of Wyoming, and he did business um, a business degree, and then we moved to Denver. So my mom and dad and I moved to Denver. My sister came along uh, a couple of years later. Did that so I had like, the best of both worlds. Did that seem like? And before we get too far, I want to talk about your school and reading this. But did moving to Denver seem like a very big deal? Well, I was only two. Oh, okay. So you don't know. Okay. For my mom and dad, yeah, it's a big deal, right? Yeah. Um, they uh, they were adventurous in that way. I mean, I think now one of my pieces of advice in this new book is don't be afraid to move. And I've moved quite a bit. I'm sure you probably have. My husband, was uh, his dad was in the Royal Air Force. Um, so I think that we are in now his 41st Woo. address, mailing address of his life so yeah moving was was part of it um but let's go back to your childhood and talk about school your parents instilled a love of reading this this segment's called afterwards um a love of reading at an early age right so yeah my mom used to go crazy because when we would go to the library you were only allowed to check out seven books at the time at a time and so i would get the books and then i would read like three of them on the way home in the car so Do you remember, well, long distance to the library. Do you remember your favorite childhood books? Well, I love the Laura, sure, the Laura Ingalls Wilder books. I loved, I like the Nancy Drew series. Uh Um, I loved all things Beverly Cleary Uh and and, um, Judy Bloom. Okay, yeah. Um, And and then, of course, I, I loved reading of all kinds. But I think one of the things that was most important for where I am today was something that I encourage people to try to do if they can. Um, when I was in third grade, my dad started this tradition with me where I had to read the Rocky Mountain News and the Denver Post before he got home from work. Wow. And I had to choose, <laughs> I had to choose two articles to discuss. Uh-huh. And when he would arrive home, he would change his clothes. As we were getting ready for dinner beforehand, uh-huh. we would sit at the table and I would present which articles I had chosen uh-huh. and then we would discuss them. Uh-huh. as to why did you choose it? What was interesting about that? How do you feel about that? What would you have done differently? Um, and and I, I, I just remember that so fondly. And then all through uh, all of my elementary school years, high school years, uh, my dad was a very voracious news consumer and he subscribed to every magazine, like mm-hmm. from 
U.S. News and World Report, Time Magazine, Newsweek, um, National Review, New Republic, The Nation. We got them all. And then we would dog ear pages for each other and leave like little notes. And then we had pretty robust dinner discussions as well, which I know a lot of people did. But I do think back, there was one time on Marine One when I had just briefed the president about something and I had a flashback to the dining room table. Wow. And I thought how important it was for me as a young girl to have to present myself with critical thinking skills in front of a male dominant figure. That's and it's an excellent point and be able to present the material concisely, effectively, with purpose, with meaning. I'm laughing only because you know what it was like to brief President Bush. Like you gotta be on top of it. And, yeah. and you have to have I, all- I won't, I won't with the details, but I one time did it. Yeah. I one time did a briefing in the Roosevelt room and I won't even bore everybody with all the, the stories, but the punchline was I finished the briefing, take a deep breath. He stands up and says, well, that sounds crazy to me, but I guess you know what you're doing and slaps me on the back and heads out, which was just a big confidence boost right there. Okay. So you get a love of news and all things information as you're growing up. And I read this and I find it, I I'm, I'm surprised, but you always wanted to be an anchor. This was a dream. When you were young. Wow. So role models, not only did we have, um, uh, you know, all the newspapers, but because we lived in the mountain time zone, mm-hmm. we could see, I believe it was ABC News and then NBC News uh-huh. because of just the way that the time works. So we got a full hour of network news and we watched local news. Uh-huh. Um, but if you think back to it, you know, I wanted to be an anchor, but in my mind, I was going to be a local news anchor. Uh-huh. Right. Because if you think of the three networks for however many decades, there were no women that right. were at the, at the top of that profession. And there's a saying that if you want to be her, you have to see her. Oh, it's a great expression. Yeah. And I, I, even all the way through graduate school, when I started doing local news as a job, I thought, wait, how do you, how do you climb this ladder? Uh-huh. This ladder seems really hard. Um, so so I, I, I did want to be in local news, but you know, the bloom came off of that rose pretty early when I realized, how do you actually get ahead? And what was the answer that you discovered? Answer was basically, well, actually another thing happened. I loved covering politics uh-huh. and I covered the state house. But when you do local news reporting, you're working your way up, you cover everything. Sure. I, I covered tornadoes. I was, I was interested in everything, but I didn't love it. Uh-huh. And then one day, Tori, there was the, the legislature wasn't in session and I got sent to cover a trial and it was the first day of a murder trial. A two-year-old boy had been killed by the mother's boyfriend at the time. And the trial was happening and I got sent to the courthouse and the producer or the director said, um, you know, go there, get the interview with the mom, you know, kind of like, don't come back without the interview. So, I am so, I, I, I wear the, my empathy pretty openly um, and I get there and I was trying to be strong and I was only 21, 22 years old. Mm-hmm. And I circled this mother three times in the courtroom, sat there and realized like, I can't do it. Yeah. Yeah. And oh my gosh. I called my dad that night and I said, I think I just got a graduate degree in something I can't do. 
which is the call every parent wants to get. <laughs> so, but you know, thankfully my dad said, we'll figure it out. I'll, you know, as soon as after graduation, we'll come back here. And I waited tables. I lived in my parents' basement for a summer. And that's when I thought, well, maybe press secretary type work, communications work would be more my speed, at least for now. And I ultimately ended up got, a, I had a chance to come to Washington DC and work for a congressman. And okay. then it all worked out. I just had a flashback, which I'll share. Really, this is the Dana Perino show, I promise people. I'll keep the Tory stories to a minimum. Um, I want to talk about writing, and then we're going to talk about everything will be, will be okay, because it's a great book. But a thousand years ago, I had an internship, which turned into a job at the Washington Star, which was a fabulous oh, yeah. newspaper that no longer exists. And I'd run around, do a million, you know, I would do whatever, whatever to have this job. And I took pictures. And then sometimes there'd be some goofy story and they'd say, go off and cover this. No clue what I was doing. So one time they sent me off to the, uh, to the armory, you know, um, yeah. by RFK Stadium. And it was a rally for and with police with the then attorney general, William French Smith. It was on a Friday night or something like that. So I go zipping out there and there may be three people there and he's not particularly getting a warm response and it wasn't going well. And I felt terribly. I felt awful. It's like a bad event. And I felt sorry for him and I felt sorry for the police. <laughs> I write this very matter of fact story like blah, blah, blah. William French Smith spoke to the police and here's what he said. Deep, deep. Call it in. Though you, No email then or whatever. You called it in. Call it in. <laughs> 20 minutes later, I got a phone call from some crusty old editor who goes, what the bleep is this? Bleep, bleep, bleep. And I said, well, and he goes, I'm looking at the AP story. The thing was a disaster and they were booing him. I was like, yeah, I just, I couldn't write that. I just felt so badly. And I did not call my parents, but I drove home going, yeah, this is not for me. Being wow. That's a great story. That's so, that's a great story. And I'm going to include it in my next book. Um, as you, you know who um, started at the Washington Star? So many people. Who? Helen Thomas. Oh, she had been there. Um, There's many, many famous people. But here's the best one. You know Maureen Dowd, right? Sure. Everybody knows Maureen Dowd. World famous, syndicated columnist, spectacular, brilliant, funny. You know, I always say about Maureen, if she's writing about somebody you don't like, you really enjoy reading it. And if she's writing about somebody you do like, it's just painful. Don't write about yourself. So she was a young, upcoming, about to be a star at the Washington Star when it folded. And when it folded, August 7th, 1981, it was big news. It was one of the first major dailies to, to fail. So lots of reporters and editors were being interviewed. She and another person named Stanley Cloud were on the Today Show with Jane Pauley doing the interview. And they're going through the usual things. And then Jane turns to her and practically pats Maureen on the head and says, well, everyone says you have such a bright, promising future what job do you want next? And Maureen, who has ice water in her veins, does not miss a beat. And she goes, yours. And it was a stunned five seconds in TV time, which is a lot. But okay, back to you. Right. Writing. You learn to write at a young age and you write about this in Everything Will Be Okay. I agree with you completely. But talk about what you think of the significance of being able to write well. Well, I feel like if you are a young reader, in your mind, one of the, your all your big dreams is that you would love to be able to write a book one day. Uh -huh. um, I actually, my mom still has this my first book that I wrote. What and was it, it called? Has a, What's it called? I can't remember. What it's called. It's got a, a. I remember though, it has a cloth cover with bunny rabbits and carrots, and it was all about animals. 
And I was like, and my cat's name is this, and my I have a dog, uh, and my rabbit is on and on things like that. Probably just because of my ranch upbringing. Fast forward. I think that America's education system is not doing a good job. Mm-hmm. And I include myself in that. Yeah. I thought I was a great writer. Mm-hmm. Get to college, not a good writer. But then I still feel like I don't even then, like, what is good writing? I don't really know. Um, when I was in graduate school, our first assignment, now all of us have mass communications or journalism degrees. Sure. Our first day of our journalism writing class that we had to take in, in graduate school, we all failed it. 18 of us failed. And the red markings just tore all these pieces apart and talk about humbling and what have I done? And that was when I started to like turn my thinking around about how to be a better, sharper writer. Uh, And one of the things I I would say, this is one of the best advice pieces of advice I ever got. I worked for a congressman named Scott McKinnis. He was from Colorado and I was just answering phones. And he came one day and got the hard copy paper. And he said, you see this right here? And it was the review and outlook section of the Wall Street Journal. Uh-huh. He said, I recommend you read this every single day. Interesting. Serve you well. Uh-huh. I will tell you, Tori, I have absolutely read that every day. If I don't read Wall Street Journal review and outlook and the columns, I feel totally lost. Like I forgot to do something that day. Uh-huh. And I started to realize, and one of the things I write about in the book is that one way to improve your writing is to improve your reading. Yes. Yeah. And if you're reading good writing, you will start to pick it up. That doesn't mean you have to imitate them, but yeah. you'll start to see what is good writing. And I would even say that um, not only writing for journalism, that's one thing, writing a book is another. I am telling young women in this book, you have to learn how to communicate well at the office. That means writing great emails like really good emails. My goal when I was at the White House, mm-hmm. I wrote, I started doing this thing called a night note. And it was partly just to keep everybody informed, but also to make my mornings easier. Because, uh-huh. you know, when the boss wakes up in the morning, the chief of staff sees an article on the front page of the New York Times, and it's a surprise. Yeah, that's not a phone call that you want to good get. in that job. Surprises are never good. Never good. So my night note was operating on no surprises. Um, Josh Bolton, who was our chief of staff. Great guy. He, he was tough yeah, yeah, as a boss. And you wanted to please him, right? My goal every day was to write the email in a way that he will not have a single follow-up question. How often were you able to accomplish that? Most of the time. That's great. But it takes time. And what I would do to teach the younger staff is I would include them or blind copy them or forward to them the email so that they could see how to yeah. do that. And I still do that to this day. Yeah. I, st- I think, and you talk about this in the book, everything will be okay. Um, because I, I, I talk with a lot of young people, my, my own kids who are 20 somethings, not always see the value of writing. They go, well, I'm not going to be a writer. I'm not going to do that. And I said, I'm sorry. I don't care what technology you use. I don't care where technology takes us in terms of communication. You have to be able to communicate something clearly and effectively. And the best way to do that is to be able to do it with the written word. And every author with whom I've ever spoken always says the same thing you just said, which is the way to be a good writer is to read a lot. They all do it. The really, really good ones, the beautiful writers, the effective writers, all read a ton. And then the other thing they all say is rewriting. Do you rewrite? 
So before you send that email, do you rewrite it? Oh, yes. Absolutely. A lot of it. It depends. I mean, I'm better at it now. And I wouldn't say I'm writing a ton of like big form emails now to people. Um, uh, But I I would say I would rewrite a few. You know, I got a compliment this weekend um, from the introduction of the book. There's a guy named Scott Adams. He created Dilbert cartoon. You remember? He's a thing. I sent him the book. And on his podcast, he said, that is the best intro of any book I have ever read. And he said that he recommends when people are going to write a book that you spend 90% of your time on that introductory story or the paragraph. Right. And you rewrite it a hundred times if you have to, just to nail it, because that's what will make a difference. And that's sometimes how much it takes, you know, to really, really try to write well. And I also think there's something about a little tip I think is true. I don't know if you did this for other people you have worked for. Um, it is important to learn how to write in your boss's voice. It yeah. engenders trust yeah. and capability, and you will be more likely to be chosen for promotion or opportunity for travel for presentation in front of the board. If you can communicate effectively on behalf of the person you, is that you is your direct supervisor, you will right. make her life easier and you will definitely set yourself up for better things in the future. Oh, I think that's a great point. And we all have, we all have techniques we like, we all have systems we like, which is great. But at the end of the day, if you're working with somebody for somebody, your goal is to make them successful. And so doing it in a way that works for them and using a system that works for them is absolutely everything. Okay, should we talk about everything will be okay? <laughs> I want to talk about the inspiration because you're a very busy person. You're an anchor, you're a podcaster. You've written a couple of books before, and the good news is, um, and let me tell you about Jasper, and we will not finish the show. I'm telling everybody it's Hispanic, and so we've talked about Jasper there behind you. Um, you had a lot going on, but there yeah. seemed to be some very clear voices. There seemed to be a very clear inspiration for this particular book. Tell us about that. So I think that you were probably the same, Tori, that um, we had great opportunities um, and visible opportunities. Um, So after I left the White House, I found just I was inundated with requests from young women for Mm -hmm. advice and that everybody wanted 15 minutes of coffee, which, of course, turns into an hour and nobody has this much time. So one of the things I did in that first book is I put all the mentoring advice I could think of into one chapter. Mm -hmm. And over the past five, six years. That is the chapter that I keep hearing about over and over again. Interesting. One of the things I write about is going through a quarter-life crisis. Um, Explain quarter-life crisis. I love that. Again, I wish I sat there. I have a long list. I wish I had known that when I was 24 that this is coming up. But it's true. Talk about the quarter-life crisis. I didn't know that this was a thing because I just went through it. And then I realized like, oh, wait, I'm not alone. And what my goal in writing this book is to let women know that you're not alone in the concerns and worries and anxieties that consume you um, and that you can share them with others and realize that the, the quarter life crisis I describe as getting to be about 25 and you start to realize, wait, everything that I planned and everything that I dreamed that was supposed to be happening right now is not happening at all. You don't have the job that you thought you would. You thought you would maybe have met a life partner and that's not turning out. In fact, in Washington, DC, I didn't even go on dates. Oh. Like, no one. Um, I, I, I met my husband on an airplane. That's how desperate the Washington, DC. I did too. Oh, really? On a flight to Taiwan. Where were you going? Uh, Denver to Chicago. There you go. To DC. Yeah. Okay, go ahead. Keep going. 
So see people, it yeah. does happen. Always make sure. <laughs> you never know who you'll sit yeah. next to. Not the um, person next to you. Wow. And you start to think, oh, you know, I, I was going to have um, this by the time I was 30 and my first child when I was 32 and my second child. And, and you start to be like, wait, none of that's happening. Wait, I don't even know if I want to be in this industry. Mm -hmm. And you start to feel like, oh my gosh, what have I done? And then if, if people get through it and you're like, oh, okay. Yeah. The new job comes through, the boyfriend or the girlfriend comes through, like whatever, like all that starts. Right. But what I have found, Tori, since I wrote that book, is that, and this is not just because of the pandemic, I found that that quarter life crisis was starting to follow young women well into their 30s mm -hmm. and beyond. And it was doing a couple of things. One, it was holding them back from opportunities uh, in the workplace, uh, and it was robbing them of life's joys. Yeah. And I found that I thought that I had some decent advice. You know, they come in here, all the, I, could, I could do mentoring all day long. Right. And it's not just women, but mostly. Like, yeah. All, I'm telling you all day long. So I wanted to put everything in one place uh -huh. where I could give the uh, mentoring advice and also just a few other tips about finding a way back to some serenity, which I think is really what God's intention for us is, is to have that feeling of, but there are glimpses of it. When, mm -hmm. But when, if you can find more serenity in your life, uh, you are going to have a better work-life balance. You're going to be more successful and you're going to be able to be more productive and a good contributor to society. So let's think about those. It's not just young women. I get it, Dana, but um, those young women, those young men, mid twenties kind of having that crisis. Why do you think it carries through these days? I think you're right till 30, 31, 32. And there's a lot of anxiety and, and angst in that, that state of being. So how do you find serenity? I cannot, ima cannot imagine in the kind of life you lead now in the world you're in that you can find even 30 seconds to think about serenity, much less achieving it. But why the anxiety and then talk about, and you write about this in the book, everything will be okay, about achieving that kind of serenity. Because I agree with you completely how important it is. A couple of things, you know, um, on my last day as White House Press Secretary, January 20th, 2009, I didn't even have a Twitter account. That's how- Simpler times, wasn't it my friend? Simpler times. Yeah, yeah, we didn't think so at the time, but looking back, yeah. yeah. Marlon Fitzwater, who was press secretary to Presidents Reagan and Bush, you know, he did the press secretary job for eight years. Yeah. There's no way because everything is so accelerated. Um, I, I think on the, on the work front, and then there's a the social media front, and then there's a the personal front. So on the work front, I'm not exactly sure what is it, what is going on with the economy, of course, now that with COVID it is even harder, right? So right. I find that young women, first of all, all of us won the lottery when we were born in America. Yes. If we are educated women in America, yeah. you are now in the driver's seat. Yeah. So all you really have to ask yourself is how hard do you want to work? What do you want to do? And what kind of good personal decisions are you going to make to make things happen for yourself? Right. Um, my, what I find is that young women, I don't know if you feel this way. I, I saw this at the White House. They just get, they're ready for the next step over and over. They're always ready. Now, some of them are a little, little bit too much of a hurry, mm -hmm. yeah. but they're ready. And, but a lot of the jobs will say, you know, they, they might have two years experience. The jobs will say you need five to seven years experience. What are you going to do in the meantime? Yeah. 
-hmm. Some of them will decide, well, maybe I need to go to law school. Maybe I need to go to graduate school. Well, maybe, maybe, but are you going to put yourself into a lot of debt for that? Mm -hmm. What's the outcome that you're going to get? Um, so, so, so there's that on the job front and a lot of young people, they do not want to leave the big city. It's, isn't that interesting? I, I hear that all, we've got 20, three twenty somethings. I hear that all the time. Is it, is it the fun factor? Is it the excitement? Is they think they're going to meet people? What do you think? I think all of that. I think that they think small towns are boring, podunk towns. What are you going to do there? I'm like, well, one, you're going to get a raise. Probably yeah. you're going to be able to buy a house real work and real responsibility. You might not get in the big city job. Yeah. In which then you can use that experience to come back to the city. Yeah. You know, if you want to on the social media front, I really encourage young women to back away from letting it consume their lives, not only because it takes away from their life, you know, and experiencing life all around you, but also I talk about this one situation where there's someone who used to work for me who has an Instagram account and I see, I follow a friend and I look at some of this stuff and think, whoa, 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 I would not post that. Mm-hmm. Too personal, I, too personal, yeah, uh-huh. too risque. You mm-hmm. know, I, I'm not trying to be a fuddy duddy. I'm yeah. just trying to say, like, I can't unsee that. Yeah. And also, at this point in your life, like, does that say senior vice president of marketing to me? Mm-hmm. Does that say great new opportunity coming your way? Like, maybe yeah. not. And maybe that's bias. Whatever. I would just say, like, just you know, if you want to have a, a great time on your social media account, there are ways to make it private. Right. And there are ways to be responsible with it. Mm-hmm. And I think young people, I think that young people are smarter about this now than we know. Also, I think they're posting on things that we've never even heard of. Oh, so. There are groups I lost track of. Okay. When Facebook first started, our, and our kids at a certain age, whatever it was, 13, 14, we said, okay, they get on Facebook. And I wasn't paying any attention to it, of course. My husband feels like he's going to be the you know, responsible dad. He follows them. They, they blocked them. Like, dad, no way. And that was the last time we had any contact whatsoever. And occasionally, occasionally, maybe somebody's birthday, we'll see somebody, but they're on private groups and things yeah. I've never heard of. Yeah, they're, you're right. They're much smarter, but not smart enough, I'm afraid. Not no. Smart. And then the third thing I would say is, and I write about this too, I think there's the one of, I think it's harder to meet people right now. I don't know why that is, especially because in some ways with online dating, um, it might be easier to meet somebody, except for, it's, I don't think it's very satisfying. You add COVID on top of this, and these young people haven't been out in a year, and yeah. the compounding effects of that are really, really big. And you start to have this snowball effect, and that you sort of feel, I think that a lot of them feel very stuck, but they're also ambitious. So what I find, Tori, is if I, at the end of a conversation of mentoring, I'll also say, like, what else is on your mind? Hmm. And then they'll finally say what it really is. Yeah. And it usually has something to do with their personal life. Mm -hmm. A few years ago, I had a really interesting conversation. The young woman who was in media and she was doing well and having a a good career. And it looked like she would follow in the footsteps of her parents and grandparents in media. And she was asking my advice on things and the classic work-life balance, which I want to ask you about. Mm -hmm. And we kind of go through it. It was going through the motions, right? It was the 15 minute coffee, which turns into an hour fine going through the motions. And we're kind of wrapping things up. And I just kind of leaned back and I said, you know, Sally, not her name. I said, if you weren't doing any of this, right, what would you do? If you won the lie, what would you spend your time on? 
her entire demeanor changed. She leans forward and says, oh, I'm into forensics anthropology. She had done an internship at the Congressional Cemetery, which is a fascinating place. People, if you ever come to DC, go to the Congressional Cemetery, Cemetery and become fascinated one thing after another. And as she's talking about it, and she's talking about forensics anthropology, which my father, a doctor in his later years says he wished he had gone into, she's leaning forward and she's so excited. Her face lights up. And I listened to this for 15 minutes, nonstop. And I just said, that's what you need to be doing. And here's the greatest part of the story. The next day she emails me and says, thanks very much for coffee. You write about thank you notes in your book. I love that. Um, she sends me an email to thank me and says, she'll never believe this. She goes, I didn't tell anybody that I applied for a graduate program at GW in forensics, forensics anthropology. I got home yesterday and I got into the program. Oh, wow. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. Right? Okay, let's talk about thank you notes. We cannot let this show end without thank you notes. So, Hugh, I think more important now than ever, but you talk about it. Okay, so not too long ago, there was this young girl. She was a, a we call them college associates at Fox, but she was an intern, basically. Um, and there was a full-time job that she was applying for. Right. And she got the interview. She goes and does the interview. And later, um, the next day, I saw her. And I was like, how did it go? And I said, and did you write a thank you note? And she said, oh, do you think it would make it look like I was trying too hard if I sent a thank you note? And I said, no, do you want the job? You better write a thank you note. <laughs> and I, one of the things I think is funny is that, um, you know, Generation X is a small generation. Yeah. Um, like, but we're now the, we're your managers. We're your bosses. And yeah. we expect a thank you note. Yeah. Is an email thank you note okay for you? I don't think it's enough. I think that I think that an email note, especially if there was an immediate follow-up, yeah. like I, I'll, I'll, um, you asked for my writing samples. Sending that. They are, and thank you for the time. And you write a handwritten thank you note. Yeah, I agree. And part of it is very practical in that we're also inundated with incoming digital stuff, right? Tons and tons and tons of it. And it tends to all lose any importance or significance. If I get a handwritten anything in the mail, I will stop the world, look at it, look and see the handwriting's nicer than mine, which is not hard, and I'll open it and read it and just there's something You'll never forget it. Never forget it. And the trouble and they went and found a stamp, right? These kinds of things. I think yeah. it's huge. Okay. It's really um, important. Can we talk about I found this fascinating that you talked about this in your book because I have thought about this. I've talked with other women about it. I've never heard it discussed publicly. And your thought on women and their voices and how okay. they use them. This is huge. This is a big thing for me. Yeah. Well, I mean, Corey, you're, you're kind of blessed with a great voice, though. Mm. Yes, you say. Nobody ever likes their own voice. Nobody. Actually, humans are, are uh, all humans around the world are afraid of public speaking or presentation because we're afraid of ridicule. Mm -hmm. And also no human likes the sound of their own voice. It's a weird thing. You hear it differently in your ear. Right. Um, so one thing that drives me crazy with young women in particular is this, I'm just going to do it. I call it up speaking. It's where at the end of every sentence that goes up because they're not really sure like whether I can't stand that. And part of it is that young people start doing this and they start imitating each other. So they don't even hear it necessarily. If it follows you into college and then into your first job, let me tell you something, you will not be chosen for a promotion. 
You will not be going to the conference or going to present on behalf of the company. You will not be asked to take the client out to dinner. You sound like a child. Uh And a lot of young women don't even realize that they are doing it. And you, if you have somebody in your life, whether it's your own daughter or niece, nephew or somebody, or maybe somebody that works with you, I feel like we have an obligation to gently tell them because it is a habit you can break overnight. How? You just stop doing it. You literally, like as soon as I, this is what I find. This has been my experience. If you let a young woman know that you're speaking like that, that they're speaking like that mm-hmm. and it's going to hold them back from something immediately. Yes. It's like, it's like stopping smoking yes. overnight. It will, it will end and they'll never do it again. Then I talk about like, you have to speak from here and Condi Rice. No, that's not the best story. Um, my chief of staff on Capitol Hill, when I worked for Congressman Dan Schaefer, she sent me to a meeting on her behalf one time. Uh-huh. And at, before I left, she said, and remember, I'm not sending you there to be a little mouse. You are there on my behalf. And mm-hmm. this is what I need to communicate it in the meeting. Mm-hmm. So I remember there were times you had to figure out a way to say something. I remember one time, actually, fast forward, and now I'm the White House press secretary. And in the Situation Room with Condi Rice there and s- several generals, they oh. are uh, impressive. A lot of stuff on the shoulders. And, you know, and th- I-, I have great respect. And this general, uh, he says, you know, you know, we have a communications problem in Iraq. And I remember Condi looking at me and kind of giving me the, here's your, here's your moment. Yeah. Like you got permission. And I got up the gumption to say, communications is tough, but we have a fact problem in Iraq. Yeah. They never want to hear that. We fix facts, then we can fix the communications. Oh, I wanted to cry. It was like, but I, but I walked out, Condi um, gave me a little good job. Yeah. And if you can do that for other women in your office, uh, it really, it really can help. And that's about finding your strong voice. And I think that if, if there are women that you admire, especially women that are public speakers, um, Megan Kelly has a great voice. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. you, you know, Kamala Harris has, has, has a great voice and a great laugh, right? Like people listen to her. Um, if you have a voice that is grating on the nerves and women, this happens when women, we have naturally higher voices. And, and people don't want to hear that, but it doesn't wear as well over time. People it doesn't hear that, but it's true. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay. Let's go back for a minute because I love this section of the book here for a reason. If you're in the room, if you're at the table, you're there and you play a role. And I'll tell one story it involves generals. And then I want you to talk about it more. Department of Defense, Pentagon, briefing in Secretary Rumsfeld's room and classic military. There will often be very senior military, two, three, four stars up here. But uh, the briefing would be handled by a one star, right? And that's pretty, in that, in that space, that one star is feeling kind of junior. So secretary is sitting one end of the table, the one star is sitting to his right, and the one star is clearly nervous. And he's going through his, his briefing. First of all, he came with his PowerPoint deck, which is fine. We hated PowerPoint, that's okay. But it was in color. And in Secretary Rumsfeld's world, that was a waste of money. So he didn't like that it was a color PowerPoint presentation. But anyways... <laughs> The briefer starts going through it and he's nervous and he's got his head down and he's going through it. And the secretary stopped him and, and asked him a question. And the briefer doesn't even look up. He goes, you're right, sir. And he just starts scratching through whatever he had just said. And secretary Rumsfeld said, no, no, what do you think? 
And the, he, again, this is a one star. He doesn't look up and he goes, no, no, sir, I've, I've, I've scratched it. I won't be in the next, next iteration of this. And Secretary Rumsfeld put his hand on his shoulder and turned him. So he had to look at him. And he said, we put that star on your shoulder for a reason. You're in this meeting for a reason. I want to know what you think. I think that is so important. I mean, maybe it's a meeting to be a note taker and that's fine. But again, you've got a purpose. You've got a reason to be there. That's very tough in a White House environment. Do you know that one of the best um, books for people starting out and starting their careers is the one that Rumsfeld's Rules? Mm. Great for life. Great. For oh, life. that's a great book. And if you are a young person watching this or if you have somebody that, that's going to graduate, this book is really good for everybody. I learned a lot in that book. And yeah, it's, it's a great gift book. I also talk a little bit about Yes, you were there for a reason. In other parts of the book, I talk about listen more than you talk. And in another part of the book, I say, don't take your phone to these meetings. Yes. Talk Leave about the phone. I think that's so important. At your cubicle and take an actual notebook, pay attention and write notes. And your bosses will see that. Yes. They will appreciate that. But you'll also, you'll learn more. You'll participate more. If you're not worried about like, oh, that text. Because it could be a very important text. Right. It's really important, but it's stunned. probably. I'm stunned, and I think it may have gotten worse with all the um, the Zoom meetings and calls and things like that. But I'm stunned to be in a meeting, and you know, the most important person in the room is there, and people will be sitting back in their chairs doing this. And I'm, th you said it in your book, everything will be okay. What are they doing? Are they taking notes? Are they looking for some information? Are they playing, you know, Candy Crush? What are they doing? Yeah. I, and just basic politeness. I'm horrified. Yeah. So a lot of that has to do with like setting your phone aside and being able to focus and be there. And that will help with your work-life balance. Because yeah. if you show, like, it's, it's like, like in college, if you go to class and you pay attention, <laughs> you're going to do okay. Yeah, on the I, I didn't follow that course. You did. I did not. <laughs> okay. One of my favorite things you have in your book is a Teddy Roosevelt quote. And it is, let me make sure I get this right. Comparison is the thief of joy. Yes. It's a wonderful quote. It's a wonderful concept. Explain it for us. And how can you, Dana Perino, embrace it, be a part of that, given the incredibly competitive world in which you operate? I mean, all day long, all of us are sitting there thinking of comparing ourselves to others. This is partly biological, right? The part of nature. Yeah. Uh, but right. it's also something like for me, I'm five feet tall. I'm like, I'm always the shortest. I, I wish I was this. I wish I was taller. I wish I um, was um, younger. I wish I was thinner. I wish I was bigger. I wish that I had this. I wish I had that kind of car. I wish I had this. I wish I had that on her shoes. Like it can, it can just get so crazy. <laughs> and also um, I really say this in, in addition, because when you get to be um, not in your first job, but in, when you're transitioning into leadership and management, right. um, there will be people in your circle or at your business that get a great opportunity that you didn't get. Yeah. Um, or that, you know, they might have, maybe they get to move to, I saw this lady the other day, she got to move to Valencia, Spain during the pandemic. And I thought, what? I want that life. Um, but what I realized is that the, as you, every time you're just comparing yourself to somebody else, there's somebody looking at you who wants what you have. Mm -hmm. And we are, we're told this as kids, but we have to be reminded as adults that 
we spend all this time thinking about what other people are thinking about us. Mm -hmm. And the truth is no one's thinking about you. Not that much. They're just thinking of themselves. (laughs) Exactly. I think about that with with senators, even like today, I'm like, oh, um, this senator did that. So that senator was like, oh, well then I better do it. It's like, who's just doing something because it's like the right thing to do anymore. It's a little frustrating. So I think that, um, again, this goes back to social media. And what does everybody think, looks gorgeous you, in their picture? Not drive you crazy because, um, and I want to talk a little bit about the White House when you were there, the White House now, your job. But um, think about when you were there. We can we considered news and information twenty four seven, and you had to be on top of things, and you had to realize there were news cycles and things like that. But there would be a period of time where things were off. Now, because of social media, life is never off. Yeah. And if you're important, an important job, whether it's a corporate job or a public sector job or the White House or wherever, you don't have that luxury. So how do you withstand the crush of that and not let it drive you crazy? Do you ever turn it off? Mm, I'm not great about that. But I, I will say that this job that I have now suits me pretty well because um, I'm on live from 9 to 11 every morning with my co-anchor, Bill Hemmer. And right. at 11.01, I'm done until the next, until the five o'clock when I have to speak again. Uh Now, um, I would say for every hour of TV that I do, I need to do two to three hours of preparation. Yeah. I think people don't realize that, but it's significant. Right. Right. So it, and and I never wing it, you know, you know, if you ever have been at the podium and you think you're going to wing it, that feeling in your gut, like I'm on a high wire without a net. Yeah. And it's not a good feeling. And I don't like to do it on television either. So I always try to be the most prepared person in the room. Um, I did interview somebody for this book that I, rec- that I um, admire so much. She's one of my friends that I look at her and think, how does she do it all? She's a mother of three, a global talent officer for a big company. Um, one of the things that she talked about as a young mom, um, she had two kids. And they were kind of underway. And she had just been told that day she had a big new promotion, global talent. Mm -hmm. The next day, she wasn't feeling well. Two days later, not feeling well. What could it be? Thought she had the flu. Mm -hmm. Surprise, she's pregnant. Mm -hmm. Timing's everything. And she said, it occurred to her, like, maybe I shouldn't take this job. Hmm. Wow. Uh And she, but she really wanted this job. She thought about it and thought about it. And she said, you know what? I'm just going to make it work. And the, she said that people would come up to her and say, wow, I, I mean, I don't know how, I just don't know how you're going to do it. I don't know how you're going to do it. And she said, well, that's funny. I don't know. Is anybody asking my husband how he's going to do it? Very true. Even today, even today. So she said that one of the things she did, she told people at her office, I am not available for calls or emails between 6 and 8 p.m. Hmm. And I will get back to you at 8 p.m. She said, inevitably, Someone would call with what they thought was a problem Uh and there'd be chaos in her house. I mean, three young boys. And she said that she would pick up the phone, put it on speaker and say, hi, how can I help you? (laughs) And let them hear the chaos. And then they'll say, oh, sorry, sorry, I'll call you back. She said, you have to create a little bit of discipline for yourself and stick to it. Okay, but... Um, and in in different jobs, I've done similar things, or I've said to people I work with and for, and people who work for me, you know, between here and here, I'm going to be 
off the grid. If you really need something, call me. As in pick up a phone and call me. And that usually stops 75% of it, right? Oh, well, that's a good point. Rather email her tomorrow morning. But you're in the news business. You have to be in the, you've got this big break between 11 and five, but you're preparing for five. So you don't really have a big break between 11 and five. You have to be, you know, the international symbol of, I don't know what now. Okay. You have to be reading everything on top of it. You might need to, you might want to call somebody or email somebody and ask them, what about this thing that I just saw come across? Does your brain ever get to rest? Um, you know, I, I'm pretty disciplined about my sleep schedule. I'm an early to bed kind of person. I'm very annoying to some people because I love early mornings. I'm a good morning person. Uh -huh. um, I actually have the opposite problem, Tori. I'm somebody who has to pull back from, yeah. from overburdening my staff. Ah, interesting. But you know this about yourself. That's good. I do. Um, but you know, I'll I'll read all all weekend long. I'm like, oh, and I got the, oh, this is interesting, and this and and also I'm interested in absolutely everything. But producers have to filter things. They're like, well, we only have a certain amount of time for the TV, so not do aardvarks today as much as you want to do aardvarks. We're not doing them. Kind of, yeah. So I started doing something that I think is working that might help for people like me because I've realized it was like the my my problem was the opposite. So I start an email for myself on Friday evenings, Friday afternoons, and anything I see over the weekend that I think is of interest, I'll put it in a draft email. Mm -hmm. Just add to it. I'll add to it. And this is interesting. And this is interesting. And then on Sunday around 4 p.m., because we have to get ready for Monday morning, um, I'll send an email to the team that says, here are some of my weekend thoughts. Now, inevitably, when I go back through my list of things that I thought were important on Friday, Mm -hmm. I can delete probably half of it. Interesting. Yeah. So that's actually helped me actually pull back too, that I'm not emailing them all weekend and they're not feeling pressure to respond to the anchor. Everyone. Yeah. So I think that, I, that I, I'm learning too. Yeah. <laughs> along this no, I, think that's, I think that's a really, really good one. Okay. Let's talk about the white house. You left in 2009. Mm -hmm. Well, how do you think that job of white house press secretary has evolved since then? What do you think it's the big differences are between 2009 and 2021? Well, it's certainly the social media aspect of it yeah. and how fast it is. And yeah. also the criticism, you know, that um, one of the things that I didn't have was people making fun of my appearance on Twitter or in real time, everything I said or looking at. Yeah, like I didn't have any of that. And one of the great tips I had from a friend recently, because now I get criticism from for other reasons, um, I wish I look at some of it, but it became, at one point in the 2015, 2016 timeframe, it was bad. And I felt like just crawling under my desk and being in the fetal position. And a friend of mine gave me a great tip. Um, he said, well, you should set your Twitter settings so that you only see responses from people you follow. Mm. Tori. Yeah, great tip. I put out 99% of the negativity. Great tip, yeah. I just, yeah. So then I realized like, oh, wait, we we can control a little bit more of this for ourselves. We don't have to let social media control us. And has 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 my decision to do that hurt me in my career? No, because right. guess what? I got a show in 2017 called The Daily Briefing. And this year, 2021, I now am doing uh, the co-anchoring with Bill Hemmer to lead the news in the morning. It hasn't hurt me to walk away from it. And I'll tell you, look at the people you most admire in your profession. Mm-hmm and see how many of them are on social media and responding to anything. Right. They're not. Right. They're not. I don't They're care what profession you look at now. 
J.K. Rowling, if you want to be a fiction author, she might be a little bit different, but she has made a decision that that's what she wants wants to do. But has it hurt her in her writing? I would imagine she would say no. I don't actually know. But if I think about people in media who are really successful, they are not on Twitter all day. Yeah, couldn't be. You couldn't be because there's not enough time in the in the day. All right, I have to triple check time here. We've got about 10 minutes to wrap. Okay, so got a few things I have to ask you to wrap up. But talk about Jasper. You wrote a, you wrote a book about Jasper. I've been following Jasper on Twitter. Um, tell us about Jasper. Uh, Jasper's hilarious. So he's my second Vishla. And my mm-hmm. first Vishla is named Henry. And he was with me all through the White House years. President Bush loved stories about Henry because, for example, in 2004, I taught Henry this trick. I'd say, um, hey, Henry, what do you really think about John Kerry, you know, when he was running for president. Right. And Henry would go to his toy box and get my old flip flop and bring it back. <laughs> play a flop. It was Hilarious. Yeah. So then Henry passed away uh, about six months after we moved to New York. And my husband and I thought, how can you raise a dog in an apartment like this? Huh? No way. I mean, like, I'm a very strict dog trainer mm-hmm. and my dogs end up better off for it uh, eventually. Sure. But our hearts were so broken and Greta Van Susteren called me and she said, there's only one way to fix it. You have to get another dog. Yeah. And so we did. And so Jasper came on the scene and he's got um, one little ear, one ear's normal, one ear's, this ear's like, this ear's like a little shorter. And nobody knows what happened. It probably happened in the womb getting yeah. injured by something. Special. He is goofy, athletic, affectionate, silly, hilarious. He is take so many we take so many pictures of him but he's good natured about that and um we were we lived in a building that had a uh what do you call that a doggy daycare yeah and they used to come and pick jasper up at 12 o'clock and return him at three and he was exhausted but he's the most well socialized dog and recently he had some health trouble he was not feeling well we took him to the vet and they said could we do some tests well they found a tumor mm-hmm. was a malignant tumor but the surgery was successful and we just got word today as we're having this interview that um, it was the more common version and he's going to be fine. So hey, congratulations. I grew up with dogs as a lot of people did. I find them the great equalizer that nobody cares about politics when no. you're talking uh, about your dogs. Yeah, I find everybody, all sorts of people, all sorts of kids can start talking and relating to each other one more when there was a dog in the room. It just becomes this great connector for everybody. Okay, we've got just a few minutes here. Um, what's going to happen with communications technology? Think about all the things we didn't really anticipate in 2004, 2009. You're in the business now of news and information entertainment. Is there something that's going to happen in the future that we've not even heard yet about yet that you think will impact your business? You know, it's interesting. About six years ago, I asked Mark Zuckerberg, what do you think the next big thing is going to be? And he yeah. said, It'll be um, basically it was Facebook Live. Yeah, I don't know. Think he called it that at the time, but he's like people. People will be able to go live from wherever they are. And that was a few years ago. Tori, I live in fear that I will be the first journalist to air a deep fake video and not know that it's fake. Interesting. Talk about that because I don't know. Everybody understands. So you can. There's technology that's developing that could pretty convincingly make it look like President Xi of China is saying something or doing something that could 
you know, lead to, frankly, war. Uh huh. I worry about. That's what yeah. I worry about. Yeah. Um, and it's happening so quickly. We are not prepared on the cyber attacks. Yeah. We are we are behind on that front. Um, so I think that the artificial intelligence that is going to allow us to communicate more directly. Like I could be sitting right now, like actually having a conversation with my mom in her kitchen, even though I'm physically in New York, it, yeah. I could, you know, that's the next step of, yeah. of zoom. Yeah. You and I could be doing this interview together. Yeah. Uh, so we, we will see that. And so there are some exciting things. I'm not, uh, I'm not against technology. <laughs> I just worry about some of it. Yeah. Um, about three years ago, I met with some artificial intelligence guys in Europe, guys and gals, and fascinating, brilliant. And I said, what do you think about, what are you worried about? You know, what keeps you up in the night thinking they were, what's the next thing they're going to build? And they said, artificial intelligence has progressed so much faster than we thought and has become so much more sophisticated than we thought. We worry about losing control. And I said, as in the AI you're creating starts to make decisions. And they said, yep, exactly. Terrifying. Okay, let's end on some happy notes. Okay. Uh, what's the next book from Dana Perino? <laughs> and when you write a novel, what will it be about? Oh, gosh, I love to read so much. Can I give a, a, two recommendations? My Absolutely. favorite book that I think every young woman should read is Patron Saint of Liars by Ann Patchett, okay. one of America's Straight great off. journalists. Yeah. I got to meet her, Tori. I was speechless. I got tears in my eyes. And I've met people from all over the world. I've never felt like that. She totally blew me away. Nice. I also just read a brand new novel called The Four Winds by Kristen Hanna. I was just typing somebody about this this morning. Ron Charles, The Washington Post, loved it. Everyone says it. Tell us what it's about. So I actually listened to it because of my timing that I have now. Um, a terrific narrator. It's basically, if you think of Grapes of Wrath, but written from a woman's point of view, uh, from North Texas who heads to California, absolutely beautifully written and an important book. So there's that. Um, my next book, ooh, every time I write a book, I think I, I have no business writing a book. I have got two busy jobs and I've added this, but um, so it took me a while to be convinced to write this one. But one of the reasons I did is because I couldn't keep up with the mentoring request People and there was such a hunger yeah. for some advice. And then, I, I also can't tell you how gratifying it is to have a young woman see the cover of the book and read everything will be okay. And then say, I really needed to hear that. And you feel them take a deep breath. Okay. Quickly. What's the novel going to be about? Come on. We won't hold you to it. You can change oh, okay. it. Okay. All right. All right. I had, I had this idea that um, this um, woman in a blue state, liberal woman, uh -huh. she is frustrated with the state of uh, politics in America. So she decides she is going to move to a red state and convince people there that they should be more in a lot in line with her. Uh -huh. And she moves there and she's like, wow, these people are actually nice. And wow. And then she falls in love. And then she starts really like, wait, maybe everything doesn't have to be about politics. So that's the idea that I've had. I have no idea how to bring it to fruition, but I love the idea. I hope you bring it to fruition because it sounds fabulous. Um, Dana, great to see you, my friend. I hope we Sorry, can- what an honor. Person one of these days, right back at you. Take care of Jasper, work hard, stay healthy, and we'll see you soon. Thank thanks. you, and thanks for C-SPAN. Thanks for listening to this week's Afterwards podcast. Subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Send us an email to podcasts at c-span.org.